Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey, good morning, everyone. Ooh, good morning, everyone. Oh, there we go. Good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say to all of you watching and listening online, good morning to you. Welcome to week four in our Take Heart series. And if you've got a Bible, we'd love you to open that up. And we're going to be in the book of Genesis today. Uh, this series has been an interesting one because it is an invitation to go and look upon the great cloud of witnesses, to look back at the great hall of faith, to be inspired by those who lived faithful lives before us, to be reminded not only of what faithfulness looks like, but also to be reminded that there is future reward coming in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the middle of looking back and looking forward, there is also the promise of empowerment to walk with God in our generation, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and in our workplaces. Now today we're going to move to our next character and we're going to look back at the great well-known life of Noah. Now if you've read the book of Genesis, you'll know that Noah's story in that book is exactly midway between Adam and Abraham. And as we're about to see, Noah, like Abel and like Enoch, was marked by faith and even like Adam, they all walked with God. A few weeks ago after I was preaching here on a Sunday morning, I said goodbye to my family and hopped on a plane to Southern California. And it was late and I was tired. I put my earphones on and as I was preparing to take off, of course, one of the stewardesses came up and said, can you please take your earphones off as we're preparing to take off? So I begrudgingly did that with the rest of the plane. And then what happened next? I've preached this before. A video came up warning us of what to do in case all these terrible things take place. This is how you put your seatbelt on. That's always fun to watch watch, oxygen mask, life jacket, positions for crash, and where the exits are. And as I've said before, I observed the plane and realized that not one person was paying attention to that video at all. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's the same thing with smoking in our culture. I wonder if more people are smoking, not less. And though that we've hidden cigarettes from teenagers and we have extensive warnings, even when you buy a pack of cigarettes, it has a horrific picture of what will happen to you if you smoke them, smoking goes up. Or texting and driving, right? We know the extreme danger of texting and driving, but how many of us even this week have done it? Or you've stopped at a stoplight and you've looked across and you've seen someone on their phone. Warning after warning after warning does not necessarily change a condition. But it's so interesting that in this story, one of the greatest warnings that takes place actually in all of human history is where we find faithfulness. And it's also interesting when you think about all these warnings, because we say, well, that's not going to happen to me, or that's over-exaggerated, or it can't be that bad, or it's going to happen to another person or another generation. But of course, that's not always true. Hebrews 11.7 records the story of Noah like this. By faith, by informed trust, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And by faith... Noah condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is keeping with faith. I don't think I'd ever read that line like that before, that by faith, Noah condemned the world. 
Now, I have three children under eight, and we did a lot of nurseries in the last seven years. And I was always struck when I went into baby stores how many motifs were Noah-based. You know what I'm talking about? And Noah's happy, and there's always a beautiful ark that you stick like a sticker on the wall, and all the animals are smiling, and Noah's smiling. And I'm like, this is not what that story really looks like. Not even close. This is a moment of extreme danger. We're going to enter the story in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. God makes a declaration that sort of is so striking in its moment. God said, My spirit will no longer contend with humans forever. They are mortal. Their days will be numbered by 120 years. So the Spirit of God, according to the Psalms, is the source of life. God will no longer contend. He will no longer shield. He will no longer prolong and protect as he had before. Humans up to this point have been living for hundreds and hundreds of years. But now he says, I will limit the lifespan of a human being to 120 years. But I had never ever until this week caught the double meaning of this. Not only is this a declaration that God is limiting the lifespan of human beings, he is also beginning a countdown in this very moment. God in this moment is actually saying that in 120 years, a great judgment is about to come and no one would escape it. Now, the question we need to ask is why is the countdown began? Why warning? Why need? Why the need to judge the human family? Well, it says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. That phrase, and God saw, if you know Genesis, we're rushed back to Genesis 1 and 2. The last time that God looked at creation, he saw that it was good and very good. But now as he sees, as he looks again, creation has become corrupt and broken. The way of Eve and Adam, the way of Cain has now become the norm. It has taken its full place. And not only were human beings in this time period sinning sometimes, it says that all their thoughts are now affected. All their actions are sinned and evil. So God chooses to act in this moment. Now, God never acts in a rash way. God never acts in an arbitrary way. God is not fickle. God is like not, is not like a dad who has a bad day at work and comes home and takes it out on the family. No one gets a drive-by shooting by God. No one gets divine judgment just because you're human. It's so interesting that in insurance companies, when a really terrible tragedy takes place globally, they call it an act of God. But actually, that is not what an act of God is, because those are random acts of living in a broken world. But God is going to act. And the reason why he's going to act in this moment is because of sin and rebellion and trespass. Community, the human family has said together, no to God and yes to self. And their rebellion is full frontal, unashamed and unbridled. They have believed the lie the snake told to Eve. And then something unexpected God known only in this passage declares what he sees. God actually declares what he is feeling. It says in verse 6, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. God, the one we just sang to, God, who is our creator, feels pain in his heart. And it phrase, the phrase here is that God regrets, God has misgivings, God doubts. Actually, in the original Hebrew, it's even stronger. It actually says that God repents of making human beings. He does a 180. He's deeply sorry. He wishes that he had never made us. You ever been troubled 
before? I mean, deeply troubled to the point where you cannot sleep or you feel the stress all the time and no matter where you go, no matter what vacation you take, it cannot escape, you cannot escape because that issue is on your mind. Well, this is what God is experiencing in this moment. But more, it actually reads in the original language that he is feeling indignant rage. And then God said it for seven I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race for which I have created, and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Now, now God says, I'm about to do something that I have never done. I'm about to bring a cataclysmic flood. I'm going to erase everything by washing. I'm going to blot out everything permanently. Creation, humans themselves, have shaken hands with the devil. They have said that they have the right to be God. They have reduced the seriousness of sin to little or nothing. And God, who we know, is just and holy and judge. He must act. Now, if that was the end of the story, I think we'd all just go and, whoa, how terrifying, how inescapable. But God is not just holy and just and judge. God is also love and mercy and faithful. And so into the middle of this pitch black darkness, there is one little light left. Extremely small, but there. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Now watch this. Noah found favor. Don't misread that. There's no moral or religious test expressed here. Noah did not win favor. He found favor. In other words, he was given favor. He experienced what we as Christians would call grace alone. God is the cause of the favor. Grace is given. Grace is received. Grace is never earned. Grace is never won. Now Noah had been following in the way of Abel, but the world had now followed the way of Cain. And when God comes to observe the earth, he finds that there is now only one human being still walking with God and no one else. It says in verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God and Noah had three sons. Now, I found out this week, very interestingly, that in this chapter, the word blameless and righteous, this is the first time they're ever used in the Bible. These are common words later, but this is the first time they are penned. And this is what this is declaring. Noah was right living, right standing, habitually holy. Did he sin? Of course, he's a human being. But his life was marked by holiness and a want to follow God. He loved God. He lived under God's standards and designs and rules. He walked with God. He walked with God. Adam walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Abel walked with God. And now he is the only one left doing that thing we were created to do. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. God looks at creation and he describes it as corrupt, not trustworthy, spoiled, disfigured, marred, broken, people made in the image of God, now inclined towards violence, the opposite of peace and shalom, the opposite of healing and holiness. The average person did not worship God, but they worshiped other gods or made idols or worshiped themselves. They regularly misused the name of God. They did not Sabbath. They did not rest. They did not want to know God. They did not honor their mother and their 
their father. They did not want to do these things. They committed adultery. They stole. They lied. They coveted. They were corrupt. The world at this moment is spiritually pitch black. Sin was standard. Worldliness was wonderful. And Satan was king. And into this hole, into this pollution, into this unbreathable choking moment, God himself comes close into his creation God comes and what he does is he speaks to the only one left still walking with him. And never forget this as we get going today. God is always looking for partners in his creation to bring his kingdom forward. He is always looking for those that are willing to work with him to recover from Eden and to recover Eden itself. So out of hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, I don't know, God takes Noah personally into his confidence. And it says in verse 13 that God came close to Noah and he uttered these words. Can you imagine the moment? I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Ever got news that floored you? Knowing that whether it was good or bad, everything would change? Noah... Yes, my creator, I need to talk to you for a moment. Of course, God, I always love talking to you. Can we walk for a moment? Sure. I've decided to do something. Well, what have you decided to do, God? I'm going to destroy everything. I'm sorry, God, what did you just say? You didn't say everything. Yes, everything. At that moment, before God speaks again, can you imagine what was going through Noah's mind? His house? His kids, his family, his relatives, every person he'd ever seen. What about him? What about he'd be struck dumb with holy fear? There's no escaping this. He's trapped. You know, the word in Hebrew, the word destroyed, is the exact same word for corrupt. So if you read this in the original language, it is literally the reading like this. As humans have marred and disfigured the earth, so now I will mar and disfigure the whole world so they cannot be sustained. All has gone to ruin. People have ruined its way, so I will ruin them. By their acts they have rejected me. They desire and they yearn for self-destruction, though they do not call it that. So I now will take up my holy hands of protection and I will give them what they want. And then he says, but Noah... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you. As Noah's sitting there, God then gives him an instruction that, of course, we've known ever since. You are to make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Now, if you take time later today or in your connect groups to read through this passage, a boat of such size had never been seen at this point in human history. 440 feet long, 73 feet wide, 44 feet high, a displacement of water of 43,000 tons. But notice, and this is so important as we keep going, God is the one who speaks. God is the one who says, you must build the ark. Salvation is never a human idea. It's never a human invention. God will not entrust salvation to us. He would not entrust even one who walked with him to understand it. He defines the what and the where and the when and the why and the how and the who. And notice the ark, if you read the story, does not have a rudder. Not only does the ark not have a rudder, there is not one reference anywhere in the scriptures that any form of navigational advanced equipment was ever built, no aids, nothing. There is nothing at all. Why? Noah's life and Noah's family's life And the animals that will be placed into the ark, that is the vehicle of salvation, will have to fully rely and survive on God's sovereign will alone. 
And see, we know this as Christians. Salvation starts with God. It is built by God. It is sustained by God. It ends with God. That is why God is so good, because he's mercy. He says, I'm going to bring floodwaters onto the earth. And I'm going to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will die. This is deluge. This is unparalleled. This is like the movies we watch and we're sort of afraid when we're in the movie theater because we think it's a really funny idea, but we're waiting for the asteroid to come and take us all out, right? That is cataclysmic. God has decided to punish. God is going to purge. Nothing is going to survive. Everything's going to die. Every neighbor that Noah ever hung out with, all his childhood friends, every one of his extended relatives, every person, Noah, you have seen and you have not seen, every animal, every pet, every bird, every crop, everything's going to die. The wages of sin really is death. And then he looks at Noah and says, but... Thank God for these moments. But I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And you're going to enter the ark. And you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives will go in with you. God moves. God elects Noah for covenant. And by the way, he does it in his, in his 600th year. And notice, he's going to confirm his promise. He vows. He gives an oath. He swears by himself to Noah that he will be saved, his family will be saved, and through them, creation. If you keep reading this story in verse 19, it says, you are to bring into the ark two of living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. It's so interesting when you compare the life of Adam and the life of Noah. There are so many comparisons, including they walked with the animals. But in verse 22, we come to our important verse. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Noah did everything. See, that is how you live by faith. In holy fear, Noah obeyed. And by the way, if you read the whole account of Noah, Noah doesn't even speak till chapter 9. God does all the speaking. Noah does all the listening. God does all the commanding. Noah does all the obeying. And Noah does not even in the text utter a word. Now, most believe, most scholars believe it took 120 plus years or 120 years, sorry, to cut the wood, to build the site, to join the planks. He would have spent huge amounts of money, a fortune to build such a boat. Faith is clearly laid out, making practical preparations, spending money and time and reputation and influence. Noah paid careful heed. Can you imagine the conversation? Can you imagine if social media had been around back then? The conversation, you're building a boat, buddy, what's your problem? Well, there's a global flood coming, and it's because of our sin. Who do you think you are? How dare you judge me? Do you think you're better than me? You're so judgmental. Don't you know that God is love? Or don't you know that I don't think God even cares? I think he walked away. Or I don't even believe in God. Or I don't believe in your God. Can you imagine the conversations? What a waste of time. What a waste of money. Crazy, crazy Noah. I'm sure there were nursery rhymes by children made up about the stupidity of Noah. And yet Noah and the boat are actually given for 120 years as mercy. That's why in Second Peter, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. See, any person in that 120 years could have repented. 
Anyone in that 120 years could have turned and said, Noah, I think the God you worship is right, and I think what you say is true. I want to join you, and God would have opened the ark to them too. But instead of repentance, though the boat was being built and Noah was speaking the truth, ignorance, mockery, and rebellion marked the human family. And so a 100 plus years passed, and we have no sense that God spoke to him from that moment, build the ark till the end. For a hundred plus years of silence, Noah built and wasted his money and his reputation. And then it says in Genesis 7, verse 4, that God came close and spoke again. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And there it is again. And Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. 600 years. Let me just remind you, church, of what I preached a few weeks ago. Age has no issue with God. God calls and is looking for faithful people. He does not look for young. He does not look for old. He's not looking for wise or inexperienced. God is definitely not looking for sexy or on point or brilliant or young or firm or competent or educated or a person of great power. God is only looking for faithful partners marked by love for him, faithfulness to his cause, and willing to do anything he says. That is who God is looking for. Genesis seven twenty-two. It says that the floods came. The waters fell from the heavens, and it also says that the earth cracked open and all the insides of the earth flooded up, and everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. Nothing is left. Nothing. It's all gone. Can you imagine the screaming, the banging on the boat as the waves begin to come, as people realize Noah's right, and yet the time has passed. Vast amounts of death all around now stilled. The water polluted by hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of corpses of humans, let alone the animals. And there now is only Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and the animals, only those within the ark. Water brought death. Water brought rightful judgment. Water brought divine cleansing. And the ark preserves those those who God had called and those who had walked with God. See, when God acts, nothing can stop. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. And in the middle of the flood and in the middle of complete loss, in the middle of utter destruction, it says these words in Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah. This is not mere recall. This isn't like God waking up at three in the morning and go, oh, who was I supposed to talk to? Oh, right, Noah. No. This is covenantal. This is God saying, I am faithful. I am trustworthy. I am Noah's covenantal partner. See, God never leaves and God never gives up and God never wants out. God is not like a guy who gets bored with his family and goes down in the basement to play video games to escape responsibility. God never walks away and commits adultery. God is with us in the best of times and the worst of times. If he calls us and we walk with him, he will never leave us or forsake us. And he even walks with us in the middle of the floods that make us dumb, overwhelmed, and broken. And the story goes, as you know, that after a certain period of time, 
the ark settled. And they came out and Noah worshipped God. And then a rainbow was struck in the sky for the first time as a declaration of mercy and kindness and grace. Now this series is given to us in Hebrews 11 is written to every generation of Christians to do one thing. We are to observe holy lives and be so inspired by their faithfulness that our everyday life sitting here in the GTA would look the same. So the question we need to wrestle down this morning is, how do I be faithful like Noah? Well, number one, let me start by saying this. We live as Christians knowing what really is coming in the end. We live holy lives. We make the concerted decision that we are going to live lives that are countercultural because we actually believe that God knows all and he sees all. We love him no matter the cost. We do things like this that are antithetical in our culture. We declare Jesus is the only way to heaven because that's what he said. We give money and time away, and people think we're crazy for the amount of money and time we give away. But why do we do it? Because we know that God is worth our worship, and we also know that God will reward us for our faithfulness in the life to come. We stand on the Word of God, the Scriptures, on all issues, no matter what family and friends say. We say that the Bible has the final say on money, power, sex, sexuality, salvation, and every other issue. No matter how many times we are accused of judgmentalism or being on the wrong side of history. We obey God for God is the one we love. He is the one who has loved us. We want to please the one we walk with and we realize that we will give an account to him and he is the one that rewards us. Our lives are called to draw a sharp line between unbelief and faith. We will walk with God, with Jesus, and we will do everything he commands us to do because he is good and he is worth our life. Noah was never, ever rude or a jerk when he was a preacher of righteousness, but he still was righteous. He was righteous. But the greater application of the story for us this morning, the conversation about faith that needs to spill out across our connect groups, the needed reality check even for this church is an honest conversation about the judgment and mercy of God. See, the Bible is clear. This story is going to happen again, and it is going to happen on a scale unseen before. It is going to happen to every person that has ever lived. There is no escape from the coming judgment of God. Only when you begin, even as a long-term Christian, to know how seriously our God views sin, only when you know there is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, Only when you know and realize that sin is not just trespass to a place you're forbidden to go, but it's not that bad. Or missing the mark alone. No, no. Sin is a front. Sin is a fence. Sin is not only breaking the law of God. It is a direct assault on the DNA of God. For the law of God stems from himself. It is an assault on love. And see, the truth is, the time we live in now is no different than the time of Noah. When Jesus rose from the dead, he looked at Peter and he said, we are now in the last times. We've been in the last times for 2,000 years. And what did Paul write to Timothy? 2 Timothy 3.1, he says, you mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money 
and boastful and proud and abusive and disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy and without love. They will be unforgiving. They will be slanderous and without self-control. They will be brutal, violent, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In other words, pleasure has more authority than God having the form of godliness but denying its power, religion. I mean, is that not your family? Is this not Toronto? Is this not our world? Is this actually not much of how we even think and what we end up doing? God is watching and God knows all and sees all and the scriptures are clear that God himself is coming again and every human being that has ever lived will be judged. See, judgment is God's underlying and ratification of the relationship we have chosen in this life. If we love God now through Jesus and we walk with him here and we want his kingdom, his reign and rule now, then we will enter enter into the full experience of him and that then. But if we do not know him now or we don't want to obey him now, then he will ratify that then. Heaven and hell are not so much about future reward and punishment. They are the logical outcome of our relationship with walking or not walking with God in this life. Here's the truth even in this church. So many of you are way too optimistic about the real nature of the human condition. We are not born good. We are born sinful We as people and our culture and churches have shrunken our view of God and we do not believe he's really that holy or he's not really watching or he's not really keeping accounts or he's not really coming back. We even in church culture have become skeptical about sin, about personal personal morality, thinking, well, it doesn't really matter much and God doesn't really care because you know I'm saved by grace. No, no. God has not changed. Jesus is the same God that flooded the world. You know that, right? He does not change and his word does not change. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing, nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Notice, not if. When Jesus returns, God the Father's Flood of holy, rightful judgment will spill not only across the earth, it will spill across time itself, and all people that have ever lived will face a holy God. Revelation 20.11 records it like this. I saw a great white throne, and the one who was seated on it, and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was not even place for them. And I saw the dead, famous and unfamous, that is great and small, Now standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. And the sea even gave up the dead that were in them. And then death and Hades even gave up the debt that had been waiting in them. And each person, notice the personal, each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, The lake of fire is the second death. 
And anyone who's not found in, whose name is not found in the written book of life, written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is truth. Now, if I preached this every week, it wouldn't be so balanced. But this idea that God is love is true, but He's also holy. And what I just read you is going to happen to each one of you within the sound of my voice and to me too. And it's going to happen to every person you've ever seen or known. All human beings will face God like this. And that is why as Christians, Jesus is the greater ark. That is why we need Jesus so desperately. The wages of sin really is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Jesus is our forever ark. And when the great flood comes, since we are already placed in Jesus and forgiven by Jesus and covered by Christ and we're secure and owned and loved and elected and called and intimate and known by God, we will be saved. But favor is given, it is never earned. How can we as Christians sitting here not love Jesus more? His salvation is so broad and so high and so deep. He really is our refuge and our high tower. This is why we love calling Jesus Savior and Rescuer because he actually is our ark. Jesus is the love, the hesed, the mercy of God. Jesus already took the Father's flood on the cross. Jesus has already taken our personal corruption on the cross. He's taken our violence on the cross. Jesus, that's why we sing these songs, is so wonderful and kind and covenantal. See, Jesus remembers you. He remembers you and when the great flood comes that will sweep across the world and no one will escape, no matter how wealthy or powerful or educated, no matter their title or rank, when we all are now before the throne of God and the great holy judgment takes place, Jesus will remember you and you will be in him forever. That is the heart of the gospel. John 3.16, oh, we love quoting it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not, what? Die, literally die, but will have eternal life. But people don't keep reading the next two verses. Verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed, had faith, trusted in the name of God's one and only son. There is only one ark in the flood and his name is Jesus. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in the ark? If not, cry out to Jesus and say, save me. Save me. Be the one who rescues me. Put me in the ark. I am a sinner. I am corrupt. I am selfish. I need someone to rescue and save me. And if you are in the ark, if you are in Christ, then let me just say this to all of us. How can we not as a church ask Jesus to help us love him more? If this is what he's going to save us from, how could we not, how could we not give us, give him everything we own? Everything we have, how could we not worship him with everything we are? How could we withhold anything from him if he's such a beautiful, fantastic savior like this? Sometimes I think as Christians, we wonder if we're making a difference in our world. 
And sometimes we actually wonder why God has even left us here. Sometimes we just want the, you know, platinum ticket out early. But let me tell you why God leaves us here. Because actually, whether you know it or not, you are the 120 years. Let me make this very clear. God in Noah's time gave them a lifetime to repent. A lifetime. And they didn't. But in that lifetime, God had Noah standing there and the literal ark was being built as a sign of salvation. And let me just unfold this for you for a moment. That is why God has left the church in the world. Because we are literally Noah. And we are the representation of the ark. We are the 120 years. We are the ones who offer the way. We are the ones who point. We are the ones who call. We are the ones who are left by God's mercy. So those who are about to be swept away in a flood we don't even like talking about can actually have a way onto the ark too. We are God's literal mercy to the world. Do you know why, do you know why Jesus leaves Christians in the worst place on earth? Do you know why Jesus leaves Christians in the middle of ISIS held territory? Do you know why Christians are still left in multiple places that are so terrible? Because God loves those people too. He loves our enemies as much as he loves us. And so he leaves the church as an ark so they can be saved from what is coming. This is why it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness. Instead, oh, I love this, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Only when churches take this gospel seriously, Will we love Jesus more? And will we also plead with others to come with us? Churches always die when they begin to say that God is love and he is never holy. This is a great opportunity for us to just understand the stakes, to be faithful, and then plead with God to have mercy so more can come. Lord, hear our prayer this day. Lord, for us who honestly as Christians have not believed your word, we repent of making a God that we want. For us who appear more worldly than we should be, we repent. We ask forgiveness. Lord, for us who do believe this, but we are angry because you've left us here Help us understand our role. And Lord, here is our prayer. And we'll just pray for our region. Oh God, God, in your mercy, come. We've prayed this for years. Come, save people in a way that we have never seen in our history. Come, put people in the ark of Christ. Oh, glory to God the Father who is trustworthy and holy. Glory to God the Son, our eternal ark. Glory to the Holy Spirit who allows us knowing our needs. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us until the day of redemption. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.